I don't really recall ever triggering any kind of warning signs or anything like that from my teachers or, or my parents or it just was something that I was able to bury so so deep inside it wasn't until I was much older that I even began to recognize that it, it had had an effect on me in any way. That's Anders Villani. He endured continual sexual abuse as a child beginning when he was just five years old. The abuse shaped the young man Anders grew into, deeply impacting his development and relationships without him even realizing. I started thinking about myself as being this very calculating force that was destructive to whoever he got close to, who essentially wasn't capable of genuine love for people. Anders suppressed what had happened to him all the way into adulthood, denying it to himself and never sharing it with anyone. Adamantly independent and of the belief that I could just push on and not address it and, and deal with it myself. Then when he was a student at university, Anders was groomed and taken advantage of again, this time by a notorious pedophile who's since gone to prison. I felt like I had sort of regressed to that boy, despite looking like a man. I had been taken straight back to that fragile little boy who had been controlled. It's taken Anders many years to process his trauma, something he's been able to do through his poetry, the latest of which has just been published in his new book, Totality. I could always retreat to poetry. It was a place where I felt totally safe. It was a place that was only for me. Anders has shown outstanding bravery in sharing his story on a topic that affects so many and is voiced by so few. In some ways, my doing a podcast like this, there's a fearful element to it, but I'm also at a point now with my work and my research and just my kind of understanding of what happened where I feel comfortable with, with talking about this. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Anders, how did the abuse start when you were a child? Yeah, so I was five years old. It was all shrouded in secrecy, as it you know often is with childhood abuse. Some of my earliest memories are intertwined with you know, memories of, of abuse. It spanned from that period of time up until I was 13. So as I began to sort of hit puberty, uh, those memories of, you know, my kind of sexual awakening or adolescence are also very intertwined with abuse. So um, it's kind of those two uh, sort of moments that very, very early childhood, early memories um, and the cusp of, of adolescence and puberty that um, I feel kind of like most punctuated by those um, those thoughts and of abuse and those experiences. Was it a family member? It was somebody very close to my family. That's that's a, probably about as much as I'll I'll say on that. Mm. How did the perpetrator justify it to you? In some ways, and this is one of the things that I've wrestled with for a long time. In some ways, those experiences were rare moments of tenderness with this person. There'd been a lot of physical violence and intimidation in this relationship. And those experiences that I you know, later came to recognize as abusive were 
in fact, kind of islands, a sense of togetherness almost, a sense of sort of this secret special thing that we did, particularly in those those earliest moments of childhood where I had no sense of what was right or wrong and whether it was appropriate, even though I think at some level it felt like something that had to be kept between us. This feeling of being complicit in something that had a kind of camaraderie element to it. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of, in some ways, the way the perpetrator was able to frame it as this almost fun or enjoyable time that we would have together where at, at other times our relationship was really colored by fear and intimidation and sort of violence in some way. And would they say explicitly to you that you can't tell anyone else about it? I remember in those very early experiences um, having a, a few sort of, I don't remember explicitly them saying you can't tell anyone else about it, but I do remember there being some sort of stigma attached to say, if I were to, you know, touch myself in that way, um, I, you know, as a five, six year old sort of hearing that, you know, I would get cancer or something if I, if I touch myself that way. So there was this sort of, um, yeah, there was a sense of danger associated with, um, with thinking about those things or doing them outside of that secretive context. But because I also feared this person, I would never have wanted to fall offside of, of what they wanted from me. It was almost like there was just there was just no question of my telling anybody about it. It simply wasn't wasn't a possibility at all. It never even entered my mind at that time. Wow. How were they able to get away with it for so long? There weren't any signs that other people picked up on? I guess not, to be honest. It's, you know, it is something that, um, you know, my parents have, have wrestled with, as you can imagine, and wrestled with is putting it mildly. But uh, I was able to compartmentalize so effectively. And in some ways on reflection, I think that that compartmentalization was one way that I was able to survive what happened and and get on with my life in a way that, you know, some other abuse victims maybe can't. I don't really recall ever triggering any kind of warning signs or anything like that from my teachers or, or my parents. Or it just was something that I was able to bury so, so deep inside. It wasn't until I was much older that I even began to recognize that it, it had had an effect on me in any way. But repressing trauma like that is something that we do to be able to cope and be able to stay alive through events that are so difficult to deal with. How did it affect your development as a young person? Yeah, through adolescence, I had what you might call a kind of latency period where I really didn't think a lot about what had happened. Although, as I sort of reflect on it now, I was a pretty unusual teenager. Um, I spent a lot of time by myself. I was kind of popular because I was good at sport and I had these these ways of covering my unusual characteristics, I guess, but I didn't spend a lot of time with girls at that age. And, uh, you know, I was obviously very sexually confused. Mm. I did have some occasions where I would be having sexual feelings or thoughts and I'd be thinking about the abuser, which was incredibly confusing. It wasn't until I was maybe... 18 or sort of 19 and I began 
having sexual relationships with women that I started to notice these kind of patterns of attraction and withdrawal beginning where I would get quite close to a girl and um, there would be this moment or almost like a, a switch where one minute I'd be very into it and the next minute the very thought of being touched by her was repulsive and the idea that of her you know getting closer and knowing more about me resulted in this this total sort of recoiling so that was an aversion to intimacy yeah it was an aversion that would happen after the initial desire for intimacy so uh, you know I would, I would want this i would want to be with girls i would want to spend time with them i would want to i would want to fall in love and um there would be this moment where that connection became a, a repulsion and I would feel completely cold towards them to the extent that I began thinking that I, I actually had something wrong with me, that I lacked empathy, that I was really cold and calculated and in some ways predatory, I think. Like I started thinking about myself as being this very calculating force that was destructive to whoever he got close to, who essentially wasn't capable of genuine love for people. Just going back to kind of the idea of survival mechanisms, you know, maybe at one point in time, I needed to think of myself as um, just going through the motions and not really having any sort of emotional attachment to what was going on. And then, you know, later in these safe situations where the opportunity to get vulnerable sort of presented itself and the opportunity for actual connection with people that I wanted to spend time with arose. I would have those same feelings that actually I don't, I'm, this is not authentic at all. I could simply walk away from this and would feel nothing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not capable of that sort of love, which is a deeply, deeply upsetting sort of self-judgment that I'm still working on to this day. Yeah, that must have been so painful to live with. How conscious were you that that result was related to the abuse that you'd suffered? I was kind of dimly conscious of it. Like I, I remember when I was 19 and I was sort of breaking up with a girl. That was the very first time that I remember just saying one sentence of something happened to me when I was young. And it was literally all I said. And it came kind of out of nowhere for me to say that. But that was when I began thinking that there was a correlation between what happened and, and my sort of adult behavior. But it was still a very tenuous kind of link in my mind and also i think i was keeping it tenuous because i was very adamantly independent and of the belief that i could just push on and not address it and and deal with it myself it wasn't until much much later you know in my sort of late 20s that i genuinely realized that i could not go it alone that i needed extra help was it that you didn't want to acknowledge it because you didn't want to be a victim and you didn't want to have your life be framed in that way? I think that was a big part of it, yeah, this idea of, of not wanting to be pathologized. But I would say that before that fear really arose, it was maybe more that I had yet to really accept my own status as an abuse victim. And it's something that I still wrestle with today to an extent. You know, these are experiences that I participated in, that I 
to some extent got some enjoyment out of. So there's this real feeling that somehow I was an equal player in what had happened. And therefore, you know, there must have been something so depraved at the core of me that I wasn't really a victim. You know, I was kind of like a an active participant in it. And mm. that is sort of a status that I've been quite uneasy with to this day, really. And uh, I'm still working to, you know, acknowledge that what happened was serious and I sh- it shouldn't have happened to me and I deserve to attempt to heal. And that, you know, the first step of that is to acknowledge that you are a victim in that, in that sense. That's such a fascinating perspective. Where do you feel like you're at with that in terms of turning the corner and being able to accept that and forgive yourself even though there's nothing to forgive in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, um, in my to-do list that I write every morning, usually I'll end it with a little line that says, bless the boy. And it's this idea of trying to forgive that child and no longer attribute any kind of blame to him. I was 27 when I entered therapy for the first time, and that was the first time that the idea of of my having PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress, was first floated. And I was very uneasy with that label, I remember, because I kind of only associated it with, you know, victims of far worse experiences. You know, I think there was this, this very active avoidance or minimization or kind of relativizing that I'd always done. I developed such a deep sense that I was okay. Hmm. And And I suppose that's um, part of the manipulation. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't genuinely feel the sort of status of of victim, of abuse victim that I could see, you know, through therapists and through, you know, my, my partner now was something that they would immediately sort of attribute to me. And it was like, I could hear that in the abstract, but I just was not feeling that way. And I still somehow felt that it was my fault and, and it was my flaws as a person, this this coldness, this sexual depravity, you know, that, that had caused it. In a lot of ways, that continues to be my main struggle in my attempt to recover is not so much believing it as at the real sort of level of subtle interpersonal dynamics and those really subtle self-judgments that occur throughout a day, you know, just checking myself when they start to get very negative and very sort of harsh and realizing that 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 is the manipulation that's the that's the kind of trauma talking and not how i actually feel about myself and it runs so deep because it started at such a young age and went for such a long time that it makes perfect sense that it would be so ingrained within you how did that relationship with that abuser end it's a difficult topic for me to talk about and there's kind of limits to how much I'll speak about, but that continues to be a challenge for me and my family that it is something that has not been fully resolved or, or kind of concluded. And in, in some ways, you know, my doing a podcast like this, there's a fearful element to it because there is this sort of lack of total resolution, but I'm also at a point now with my work and my research and just my kind of understanding of what happened where I feel comfortable with, with talking about this and as though 
my story potentially can have some sort of significance to others who've been through similar things. But yeah, the fact that it is still governed by a degree of sort of maneuvering around the issue and having to be secret sometimes and then not secret at other times means that there's this constant challenge of, uh, of not knowing how exactly to to talk about it and when, which definitely, I think, prolongs that sense of lack of closure, I guess. And you are incredibly brave to talk about it. And it does hold so much weight. And I really commend you for doing that. It's so hard to find these stories and, and have people come forward and tell that story for exactly those reasons. And part of what we need to do is have these discussions and have that be part of the dialogue. And this is something that happens behind closed doors and in secret. And so many men and women felt like you felt and felt like they were the only ones going through it and then hearing a story like yours would potentially make such a huge difference to someone so i think from that perspective it's certainly worth it and you see it that way as well but it does take so much bravery to do what you're doing so massive respect and then horrifically you actually suffered more abuse as an undergraduate student at melbourne university which was unrelated can you tell us about that Sure, yeah. Unrelated, but as I've been processing it, sort of has this eerie parallel with what happened when I was a kid. So I was 19. I felt as though I'd moved on to an extent, although I you know, hadn't actually begun to scratch the surface of what happened. But I was uh, the Melbourne Uni tennis champion and I was living out of home for the first time and I was really feeling that I had sort of become an independent kind of adult man. And, um, and quite a high achiever. Yeah, quite a high achiever. Things were kind of looking up and I, I was in a good place psychologically. This man at Melbourne Uni, he was a, a kind of an academic advisor. He approached me in first year uni and I met with him and he it was kind of like this quite generic meeting where he asked me how things were going, how I was enjoying university, how I was sort of transitioning from high school. And it was just this very introductory meeting. And then over the next kind of year or so, he asked me uh, if I wanted to be part of the university brochures or the faculty of arts brochures, if I wanted to have my photo taken. And I agreed to do that. And then that sort of photo opportunity then turned into this other proposal where he asked me um, if I wanted to take part in this sort of special arrangement that Melbourne University had with a modeling agency to um, take some more photos of me uh, and send them to an agency as kind of like a trial. It felt very legit and we were in his kind of nice office. And um, Why did it feel legit? I think just because it had the sanctioning of, of the uni. Um, you know, I, but it, it is something that on reflection, I, I do wonder whether somehow uh, he recognised some, some vulnerability in me. He mm. saw that maybe I would be a good candidate to be to be groomed in that way because yeah you know those, those photos for the modeling trial ended up being um he and i in a in a photo studio at the university um where he was taking quite compromising photos of me in these little this little pair of underpants that he'd brought in um saying that it was kind of the uni had supplied these these underpants i mean it sounds crazy thinking about it now but it culminated in him proposing that uh the university was going to give me this prize for taking part in in the modeling stuff and the and the brochure stuff and um the prize was this night at a at a nice hotel in the city 
And um, that ended up being he and I going and spending a night together at a hotel. Um, not a very nice one. Um, we slept in separate beds, but he's kind of like chaperoned me through this night, which is very bizarre, I remember. But again, it was kind of like he was flashing the credit card saying it's, you know, it's all on Melbourne Uni and... Um, Somehow or other, I, I I went along with it, and I didn't. I it it just didn't click that something was amiss, and I actually I really repressed that for a long time. To be honest, it was sort of seven eight years where I would occasionally think about it, and then I and you know I should say that you know the the modelling arrangement never existed. You know the, the the agency had no awareness that there was ever any kind of arrangement, and then the brochures that he had initially proposed, you know, that I would participate in, they never, they never eventuated. So this, all these kind of, um, you know, aspects of credibility sort of fell away. And yet still I didn't confront possible um, sort of reality that in fact something a lot more kind of insidious had happened. And yeah, it wasn't until quite a bit later that I, discovered that he was yeah uh, a, a pedophile who's actually currently in prison in western australia for some historical rapes of schoolboys and you know this awful awful offending and um you know the idea that he many decades later was sort of still operating according to those same predatory patterns was deeply upsetting and just the idea that somehow i had um after all the, the growth I thought I'd done and the physical strength that I had that I had added on to, you know, my my sort of self since the abuse ended when I was a kid, that that had not saved me from being able to be manipulated and, and sort of and groomed in that way. And even the idea that I had taken part in it willingly is something that still eerily and sort of painfully parallels that thought that, you know, when I was a kid, I... I didn't say no, you know, I didn't tell anyone. So is it just because I wanted it, you know, was I this this equal agent in it? So yeah, it's been sort of another layer of processing that I've I've had to do and that I, I continue to have to do. What was the result of that night in the hotel? Did he drug you? I don't think so. In some ways, it's sort of... Uh, <sighs> The challenge of of kind of like the aftermath of it, in some ways, for me, has has been the fact that nothing overtly abusive occurred in a way. Like um, I remember speaking to a, a police officer about it in sort of 2017 or something, and they were sort of saying, "Well, did he touch you in the hotel room?" And I, I don't remember him touching me. I don't remember him drugging me. I, I went to sleep and. I, I don't have any recollections of, of what happened after that. Um, and because I don't remember that anything happened, it sort of falls into this real gray area of the law where I was overage. So gro grooming laws only apply when you're um, underage and nothing physically abusive occurred. And so what exactly was it, even though it was this kind of, enormous violation of trust and you know such a such a deep betrayal and um and such a deep trauma particularly given what i what i'd already been through um it's difficult to actually define what happened particularly given that this is a man who who has raped people you know so sort of like 
and using that pattern as well where he would do the photo shoots and convince people that it was on behalf of an institution and he just repeated that same formula yeah. but you don't have a specific memory of an attack as such taking place so it's not like you can concoct one i understand what you're trying to say there yeah it's uh i think the most disturbing aspect of of sort of finding out who he was four or five years ago and um reading a little bit about um sort of the trial notes of of um, the western australian case that he was ultimately jailed for and seeing that you know one of the things that he would do uh, is he would get the students to wear white bathers um for these kind of fashion parades or some sort of you know fashion contest that he had concocted and it was almost precisely what he had done with me down to the color of the underwear it was just just so so just eerie and disturbing why did you trust him the credibility that he had as a as a senior staff member in a nice suit and um you know it, it all just felt so it felt so unthinkable that he would not be legit. I guess you, know? you assume, like, how could this person be hired by a university if they were anything but? Because surely they would have been checked out, you know? You, you definitely do think that, you know, uh, when you're, you're 19, you deserve to go to a university and not, um, not ha have this risk that there are staff members who are going to prey on you sexually in that way. Um, so I think just the... The cover was just the, the total, totally unrealistic nature of it, in a way. When you look back in reflection, the signs seem so obvious to you, but that's not what it's like at the moment that it's happening. Do you remember how you were processing it in your mind at the time as those requests sort of got stranger and stranger? Did you have moments of thinking, oh, this doesn't seem quite right, or was it all seemingly above board even though when you look back it sounds like that couldn't have made sense i do remember having moments where something seemed amiss but the power of the sort of university sanctioned aspect of it was was great but also i think the the fact that i was kind of the center of attention in a way as well like it was it was my modeling opportunity it was my opportunity to sort of be showcased in the brochure like there was this there was this real combination of giving me sort of a sufficient amount of flattery and, and also making it feel like this was something that i was i was kind of agreeing to this is a really great opportunity but would you like to you know if i said no uh it would have stopped there so it was, again it was kind of this this very masterly manipulative strategy of, of giving me what felt like the agency in the situation when in fact I was being totally manipulated and groomed. So yeah, a, a deeply, a deeply distressing sort of um, added trauma of this feeling that uh, the, the power that I thought I had in that situation was in fact a, a kind of a total impotence and um, I wasn't able to distinguish between the two. And what was the impact of that on your psyche and your sense of masculinity and the way that you were in the world as a man at that point? Yeah, particularly later, like once I found out who he was, 
Um, How much later was that? This was 2017, so it was kind of nine years later that I approached the university. I was actually tutoring at Melbourne University at the time, so it was sort of um, at that point when I finally um, actually remember I was uh, on holidays with my girlfriend and um, we're kind of sitting by the pool and I was going through a lot of um, a lot of difficulties with the other trauma at the time. I had just gone into therapy because I was sort of losing my girlfriend. I was that same pattern was playing out. I was withdrawing from her, uh, couldn't be touched by her. And then when I would sort of feel that I wanted to touch her, I would feel that I was a predator in a way. It was like not being able to imagine how healthy masculine sexuality could sort of play out without it being like I was the physical predator taking, you know, taking advantage of this sort of physically weaker and sort of more fragile being, you know, that was how I, that was how I was sort of beginning to think about it and how I've often thought about it over the years. And then I remember just saying to her, it just popped into my mind because I, I guess I'd sort of was beginning to talk about the childhood stuff. And I sort of just said, Hey, can I tell you about something that happened? And you can just kind of give me your honest assessment. And I sort of gave her the narrative that I've just given you. And she kind of looked at me and was like, that was messed up. You know, you need to figure this out. Does he still work there? Who is he? You know, there's clearly something has gone wrong there. Then I, I sort of made a few calls and a few inquiries and finally found out who he was and saw all the, the case notes from WA and that was when it all the penny dropped that I'd been groomed and this man was at, at no point was it ever genuine. And that feeling at the time was one of, of a deep feeling of kind of infantilization where I felt like I had sort of regressed to that boy despite looking like a man. I had been taken straight back to that fragile little boy who had been controlled and um, it was as though it didn't matter how sort of accomplished I became or physically strong or whatever it was, you know, that there was always going to be this part of me that could be, you know, if the right words were spoken, that could just be accessed again and, um, you know, and taken, taken advantage of again. And I think, um, yeah, just as a, as a kind of, um, as something as a challenge to masculinity, particularly, you know, that sort of heterosexual masculinity of, of strength and, um, and kind of power, it was, uh, it was deeply affecting because it, it did make me feel that, um, you know, at the, at the heart of my, of my sort of being was this, this impotence, this weakness that could always be, could always be leveraged or kind of accessed. And that that wasn't something that you were able to correct by, building your body or whatever it may be and that you had something at your core that opened you up to these kinds of predators and again that sort of framing that it was your fault somehow exactly yeah uh, you know this sort of passage from being an 18 19 year old and first mentioning the abuse to you know a partner through to being sort of 27 and going to therapy for the first time what really characterized that period for me through my 20s was one that i now think of as actually being quite governed by a kind of toxic masculinity where i really felt that i could do everything myself 
you know, I, I didn't need help. Um, obviously, you know, as a writer, I, I kind of wrote feverishly about a lot of these experiences, often not, often not directly, you know, it would be through fictional stories where the characters had had sort of somewhat similar experiences to me, but not directly autobiographical because I probably couldn't, couldn't have faced that at that point. But there was just this real resistance to letting people in and a resistance, as I said earlier, you know, to admitting that I needed any kind of other help. Like, you know, it was always this sense of self-reliance that, you know, as a kid, I, I had needed probably for my own survival. I'd needed that, that deep sense of solitude and refuge. But then as I, as I got older and sort of, you know, the idea of, of admitting fragility and admitting vulnerability became so crucial to beginning that sort of process of recovery I, I wasn't able to do that and it's only in the last just couple of years that I've, I've started to really break down some of those um some of those walls how has asking for help and going through therapy helped you immeasurably but it's also been scary because what it has done is probably in some ways opened pandora's box as well where the the depth of compartmentalization and avoidance and all these strategies that I'd used for such a long time that have enabled me to kind of at one level get on with my life and achieve a lot of the things that I that I set out to achieve and um, you know do a lot of travel and go on scholarship to the states to do my to do my masters and in some ways live the life of a quite successful functional person while inwardly I was continuing to kind of break down, um, you know, to going to therapy for the first time and really uttering a lot of the, these these words that had sort of, you know, previously felt impossible to to utter, and uh, you know, to to then sort of realise, okay, I'm dealing with something that's very complex here, and that sort of cuts to the absolute core of who I am in the world. Um, it's going to mean that if I really want to go down this path, it's that it's going to be hard as well. You know, the only way to heal is to really understand the extent to which I've sort of been broken by this. So yeah, that that um, that seeking of help and that sort of admission of vulnerability, the growth that it's allowed in sort of my capacity to have healthy relationships. You know, I'm I'm still with my partner now that I was with. You know back in 2017 so that's my first time really having a, a long-term healthy relationship where i feel safe that wouldn't have been possible without going to therapy for the first time and and um and talking to other friends about it and just gradually opening up that vault that i'd kept everything in did you have a sense deep down that it was going to bring up all those demons and is that partly why you avoided it for so long Probably, yeah. Um, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but yeah, this this idea that you know, if I just keep moving, if I keep sort of um, keep writing, keep sort of pursuing my career in this really obsessive way that I always have, just it's a kind of a constant, almost like a shark-like movement, you know, where you know I actually mention a shark in my book and it's this idea that you sharks don't sleep they just keep going and if i could just keep running then maybe i would never have to fully confront the you know 
the, what the problem that actually exists within me rather than in any external form. That makes a lot of sense and I know a lot of people can relate to that. How have you been able to develop your capacity for intimacy? Because you said earlier that that was a real struggle for you, yet you've managed to stay in a long-term relationship. What have you done to be able to change that? Yeah, I mean, obviously therapy is the sort of the primary one um, where, you know, I had started to articulate clearly to therapists these patterns that had basically prevented me from from having those kinds of relationships in the past and patterns that were so frightening for me to articulate because it felt as though I was essentially admitting that I was a monster in a way that I lacked true empathy that I was just this cold and calculating predator I suppose and so did you really believe that that's what you were did that feel foreign from what you actually deep down thought was your true nature or did it seem very much like that was definitely the case I think there was always this dissonance between the two. Like there was this constant war between those two senses of myself. One of the main consequences of that tension was this real difficulty understanding what was authentic and what was inauthentic in the way I thought about myself and the way I related to people. Like there was this almost constant second guessing of my own motives. At one level, I'd be sort of thinking things and feeling things that, you know, at another level, I absolutely abhorred and felt so against with, with all this other aspect of my being. So I I really, I really wasn't sure to be honest. And that, um, that uncertainty resulted in such a feeling of duplicity or duality, like that I was always a kind of almost con artist at times where I just, I, I did not know what my own authentic feelings about myself were. Such a, an ungrounding feeling. That seems to make sense when you reflect on the pattern of abuse and the way that that makes you double guess yourself throughout that whole time, that, that you would continue to do that throughout your life because that had just been such a pattern that you'd been trained to always question what's right, what's wrong, how you feel versus how someone's trying to make you feel. As someone listening to your story, it does make sense to me how you could continue to have those same sorts of patterns throughout your life. But it must be really hard to recognize that that's coming up again and then be able to trace it all the way back. But then say, and I don't want my whole life to be defined by this or to continue to have to live between two worlds or continue never knowing where I really stand and who I really am must be so frustrating and I guess takes so much work to be able to think and live differently. You're so right that that sense of of duality of really not knowing whether you're sort of you know you're liking it or you're not liking it or you know you're complicit or you're totally innocent and you've got power or you don't have power, you know, all those things are kind of traced back to the abuse. It does kind of create, or at least in my experience, it, it, it created a sort of mental approach or system that attached itself to almost every aspect of my life. You know, 
relationships, but also very basic sort of thoughts about whether I actually wanted something or didn't want anything. In some ways, the most traumatic legacy of of the abuse for me has been this very ambiguous sort of system of, 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 of understanding the world that always seemed to be caught between these these two sort of um, these two warring sides of myself and that there was really no uh, aspect of my life that was safe from that system. It sort of yeah, it was like a parasite that sort of fed off every everything that I everything that I did, everything that I thought. Trying to straighten that out and trying to sort of silence that that constant doubt and, and negative judgment so as to feel more, uh, you know, a greater degree of self-love, a greater capacity for self-forgiveness, you know, that that has been sort of my, in some ways, my primary struggle. What role has poetry played in your healing journey? I've written poetry for as long as I can remember, honestly. Um, some of my very earliest kind of uses of language, I remember, were sort of... Um, language that highlighted the kind of the sonic and rhythmic aspects of language and that somehow they kind of helped capture these intense feelings that I had as a kid, you know, in a very romantic sense, you know, I would often have very overwhelming feelings, often of joy, you know, where like the sun would hit me and I would just feel such a deep ecstatic feeling that I wanted to try to articulate, but didn't seem, you know, capable of articulating in any explicit manner. And so, you know, poetry has kind of always been there for across cultures as the, as the form we turn to when we're trying to articulate something that feels almost beyond words. So we, we pay more attention to the way words sound, the way words kind of move rhythmically and we use metaphor. So, you know, describing things in, in terms of other things so we can kind of get at this feeling of, of a kind of underlying interconnectedness between sort of the different sort of facets of, of, of existence. And so when you take that genre or sort of that functioning and attach it to these very, very intense, but also very private, really unspeakable experiences that I went through. Um, you maybe starting to get at why it felt so important to me, um, particularly as I sort of went in, got into my kind of late teens, into my 20s and started really writing in earnest. Poetry just felt like the form that was most able to allow me to say a lot of things while also keeping a lot of things concealed and in some ways I, I really needed a form like that because i had so much in me that i wanted to get out so much that i kept repressed for such a long time you know this massive reserve of energy and urgency that i that i needed to try to expunge but i also had this deep confusion this deep secrecy this deep feeling of complicity in what happened so i had all these forces that were making me want to talk about it and then all these forces that were making me want to kind of keep it silent and poetry's capacity to you know move between saying things very directly and then and then sort of keeping things a lot more concealed just was uh the form that felt most useful for for that uh that tension that i was trying to get at as it worked yeah to be honest if anything it's at times maybe it's worked a little too well because before I went to therapy, I really relied on it as the only 
crutch in my kind of self-care routine. You know, I, I could always retreat to poetry. It was a place where I felt totally safe. It was a place that was only for me. It was a place where I could try to sort of regain control over forces that I felt like I had no control over. Um, I could kind of reshape the narrative at times. You know, I could change details. I had this sort of this power that I didn't have in any other kind of capacity related to the abuse. So I probably lent too heavily on writing as a tool for sort of self-inquiry and self-care when in fact what I really needed to do as well was talk to people, share my story with people who I trusted and loved, go to therapy, you know. So I think of it as being this enormous reserve of, of, of care for me and I, I'm so grateful that I've had poetry to get me through a lot of hard times to allow me to put into words what felt sort of impossible to express. But I also recognise that it can't be the one solution because yeah it's asking too much of an art form for it to you know to take care of you in that way how are you doing now i'm doing well i'm doing well i am a full-time phd student that's been going well just about to put out my second poetry collection so at a career level i'm progressing well and i, I really love teaching as well i teach undergraduate creative writing and that gives me a huge amount of joy and to be with sort of young adults and um, kind of assist them in their in their practices but then at a sort of personal level uh, I feel it's a day-to-day struggle you know um, I have good days and bad days there are times when I do succumb to you know a very high level of anxiety and doubt and the trauma gets difficult to kind of contain but in large part, I think my my routine for self-care is pretty good at the moment. Um, I run a lot. I, I exercise, you know, and, and try to take care of my body. So there's, there's that element. And then my therapy sort of is continuing and I'm making breakthroughs there. So I definitely recognize that it's going to be a long haul and recovery is not something you define by this sort of this easy binary of, you know, you're sick and then something happens and bang, you you get better. It's it's more of a day-to-day sort of negotiation that you have to stay on top of. Yeah. And why do you share your story? The idea that this pain that I've suffered could be converted into a kind of knowledge that is shareable and that might help others going through similar experiences to, you know, to better understand what they're going through and then potentially what is available to them in terms of, in terms of help. And then also to, I think, to recognize that they're not alone. Anytime they feel absolutely alien from the world and that they're somehow, you know, uniquely sick or depraved or any of those things that we've we've spoken about that, that really is the trauma talking and that there is always somebody who will who will listen to you who who will empathize with you you know i think i see that dimension to what happened to me as sort of a necessary step in my own recovery to talk about this right now and to write my books and to do my research into trauma is a kind of expression of my right to recover my right to love myself and to see that what I went through is something that um, 
I can I can convert into a, a, a kind of experience that I can share that that might be a benefit to other people. And I, I see that as a a beautiful kind of um sense of belonging to a community um, through that process. And you've come so far to get to this point and it is so powerful because of what you've been through and because of the point that you've arrived at and the fact that you are willing to share something that is up there with the most horrendous kind of things that happen in our society and it just takes so much bravery and such a want for a better life and such a want for others to feel like just because they've been through something like this it doesn't mean you have to be broken forever or that there's no way forward for you and that you can't go and live a beautiful life because you suffered abuse in your younger years. You're an example that despite all of that, you're still finding a way to contribute so much to the world and live out the life that you want to live and change quite a lot as a person into your adult years as well. So I think it would be tremendous for someone who's had a similar situation to you to hear and watch you speak about it and even for those who haven't as well and you are so articulate and well-spoken and you've obviously reflected on this so much thank you so much for being willing to talk about it and put it out there because obviously you're under no obligation to do so and it does bring some more complications to your life potentially being brave enough to put that out there so well done, man. It's incredible stuff. Thank you, Callum. It's a real honor to take part in this podcast. And thank you for all you're doing for young men's mental health. It's an enormous value to the community at large. Lastly, where can we read your book? You can go to my website, andersvelani.com, and read a little bit more about me and about the book and also read some of my publications. Uh, recent work, Press is the name of my publisher. So you can also go onto their website. Uh, it'll be coming out in select bookstores and you can read more about that on my website too. Fantastic, mate. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please give us a quick rate and review. It really helps us out. You can watch every episode in studio quality video now on Spotify and on our YouTube channel, Youngblood Men's Mental Health. We go by the same name on Instagram and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Most importantly, please share this podcast with someone in your life who needs to hear it. We're all in this thing together. Catch you next time.